This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. It was supposed to be a joyous occasion, giving birth to a baby girl, but it ended up sending Erica Irving to the intensive care unit. Three days after the delivery, Erica had trouble breathing. My blood pressure was 202 over 180. The common blood pressure, like, the, you know, what is like 120 over 80. So mine was probably about, like, it's double almost. Erica had suffered preeclampsia during pregnancy, and things got a lot worse after birth. My body was crashing. They said I had heart failure. I had fluid in my lungs. I had pneumonia. It was just, it was just a lot of things happening. I'm like, I just brought this life into the world, and it feels like this is all being snatched from me. Erica was sedated and couldn't talk or move because of the swelling. Whenever I would come to like wake up out of the, you know, the sedation, I would always have a nurse by my side, which was really comforting. And I think this was probably the first instance where I kind of just felt at peace and like I felt comfortable. Erica says the staff in the ICU were always around. More often than most, they would kind of just check on me to see how I'm feeling, um, if I'm able to breathe, asking me to move my extremities, my lower extremities to see how that felt. Because again, I couldn't move due to the swelling. I think I had one nurse that would kind of sit with me and watch me sleep. Erica eventually recovered and is fine now. Even though it was a really scary experience to be that sick, Erica appreciated the constant care. When patients are sent to the ICU, it means their condition is very serious. Their life is in danger. They need a lot of medical attention. All eyes on this patient. Interventions like ventilators are on standby. So we're always at the ready. We're constantly rounding on our patients, looking at vital sign changes, looking at lab changes. That's Haney Malamat. He is a critical care physician. You can't pontificate too long. You have to make a hypothesis of what you think is going on with the patient and then act on that hypothesis and then be able to change on a dime. In ICUs, the nurse-to-patient ratio is supposed to be much smaller than the rest of the hospital, maybe two patients per nurse, sometimes just one. The ICUs, from a real estate perspective, it's usually a very small space. And that's because it costs a tremendous amount of money to have somebody in the ICU, so that resource is finite. But also, if you had an ICU that's spread out all over the hospital, it'd be very hard to respond to emergencies for your patients. It's the kind of care that, thankfully, only a small number of patients require. But, of course, that changed during the pandemic, when so many very ill coronavirus patients ended up in the ICU. Intensive care units all over the country became a focal point. How many beds are available? Are they filling up? It became a measure of how widespread and dangerous the virus was. And it drove decisions on stay-at-home orders and lockdowns. On this episode, a look at intensive care, its roots, what it's like to work there, and how the pandemic has changed it.
Our first story takes us back to the very beginning of intensive care, 70 years ago this summer. These units came about during a time of crisis and desperation, when one doctor's brilliant idea changed how care was approached. Daniel Simo has the story. In the summer of 1952, polio was raging in many places with Denmark going through a particularly serious outbreak. There were a lot of cases elsewhere in the world. There were some spots in the United States that were truly terrible that summer as well. But in Denmark, um, they had this kind of one hospital that was the focus for the entire country for care of these patients. That's Hannah Wunsch, a critical care physician and a professor of intensive care medicine at the University of Toronto, who is currently writing a book about the polio epidemic in Denmark. And uh, at one point, they had 50 patients a day coming into their hospital, uh, and they were completely overwhelmed. The hospital that took in the most serious polio cases was Bladem Hospital in Copenhagen. And there were an enormous number of what are called bulbar polio cases. Polio is an infectious disease caused by a virus which can affect a person's central nervous system. Any part of the body can become paralyzed, but with bulbar polio cases, the virus attacks the bulbar part of the brainstem. Where it's difficult to breathe, difficult to swallow, and the mortality rate was very, very high. They'd never seen anything like it. And so they knew if they didn't do something, they were going to see catastrophic numbers of deaths. Polio was known to strike in the warmer weather, especially in summer, and it affected people of all ages. A vaccine was being developed, but it wouldn't be widely available for another three or four years. Until then, treatment options were limited. For people with breathing problems, the main option was the iron lung. Ladies and gentlemen, you are looking at the business end of an iron lung. And that sound that you'll hear is the air being forced into the lungs so that the patient can breathe. And if anyone should pull a plug, stopping that air, the patient would die within a minute. The iron lung, it was invented in 1928. And it was a way, it was really the first way to try to use machinery to help support someone who was having trouble breathing. It basically looks like a giant tin can uh, that someone's head sticks out of. The concept behind the iron lung was to apply negative pressure around a person's chest by sucking the air out of the large metal cylinder. And the idea was that it would make a seal around someone's neck and then it would literally create a vacuum in the iron lung that would force the lungs to expand in that vacuum and therefore someone would be forced to take a breath in. The problem, though, the iron lung wasn't very effective. And so, in fact, with that type of polio, people often reported still 80% mortality, even with the use of the iron lung. Iron lungs were also large, difficult to operate, and very expensive. And at Bladam, they only had one iron lung in the entire hospital. So something else needed to be done. And the person to do it was a somewhat unorthodox anesthesiologist. Bjorn Ibsen was born in Denmark in 1915. He was studying medicine at the University of Copenhagen. And by 1940... Decided when he finished his studies to become a surgeon. 
That's Louise Reisner-Senela, an anesthesiologist from Copenhagen, whose postgraduate research focused on Ibsen's work. She says that Ibsen soon realized that it would be hard for him to rise up the hierarchy of the Department of Surgery at the University Hospital. He then looked around him and saw that his career opportunities were rather dim. He could see that it would take him many, many years before he would be able to, to advance within the system. So instead, he chose to focus on a field that was still relatively new in those days, anesthesiology. It wasn't a specialty in Denmark at the time, so in order to learn about the discipline, he moved to the U.S. and trained and worked at Mass General Hospital in Boston. The skills that Ibsen learned there would prove invaluable in 1952. He had returned to Denmark and was working as an anesthesiologist at various hospitals. But he was asked to come into Bladam to see if he could put his new skills to use with their polio patients. He was just a very observant man and had a lot of expertise in looking at how people breathe and understanding what was going on with them in the operating room when they were breathing under anesthetic. And uh, it was this training and background, this kind of unique combination of having seen what was going on in the United States and clearly being an inquisitive person uh, reading widely that led him to propose something that was considered quite radical. Ibsen was going to attempt a risky experiment. It was something that just wasn't being done in those days. In fact, it was the opposite of what was done. Instead of using negative pressure on a patient, like in the iron lung, he wanted to apply positive pressure. Essentially pushing air into the lungs with a bag of air and oxygen and breathing for them. To do this, he first had to do a procedure called a tracheostomy. Putting a, a hole into the neck and a tube into the lungs to help someone to breathe. This seemed like a counterintuitive way to do things. After all, the way that we breathe naturally is through negative pressure. We contract our diaphragm, expanding the space in our chest and drawing air into our lungs. Using positive pressure seemed odd, even dangerous. And people were actually kind of afraid that if you pushed air into the lungs that you might cause damage. But at that point, they had no other option but to take that risk. The very first patient chosen for this experimental procedure was a girl named Vivi Ebert. She was just 12 years old at the time. People described her as a sweet, vivacious girl. But on August 26th, 1952, she was taken to Bladam Hospital. She was suffering from a severe case of polio, with both arms and both legs partially paralyzed. She had mucus in her lung and could barely swallow. And by the time she got to the hospital, she was struggling to breathe. And at this point, they looked at her and basically they knew there was nothing more that they could really do for her, that she was very likely to die. Ibsen prepared to do the tracheostomy. But things did not start off very well. As Louise explains. One must just try to imagine being 12 years old, not able to breathe, not able to swallow, and then some, somebody comes and makes an incision in your, in your throat. She was not laying still, and, uh, and it was not easy, neither for the doctor nor for Vivi. Vivi resisted. She gasped for breath and turned blue. She goes into what's called bronchospasm, meaning her kind of lungs constrict and they can't actually ventilate her. So Ibsen had no option but to give her more anesthetic and put her under. 
everybody kind of gets nervous that he's not going to be successful and walks out of the room to go to lunch. Louise interviewed Bjorn Ibsen as part of her research in 2006. He was 90 years old then. And Ibsen told me that at that moment, many of his colleagues who did not realize what was happening, they thought Vivi were about to die. They thought she had stopped struggling because she was dying. So they left the room and said, well, it didn't work. It was at this point, with everyone out of the room, that Ibsen started putting to work all the knowledge he had gained as an anesthesiologist in the operating theatre. He knew that it would be difficult to provide treatment to a patient who was thrashing around in clear pain and distress. So the only way he could try out his new method was with Vivi properly sedated. And that gave Ibsen the time to now suck out all the fluids that had collected in the lungs. This was a very simple but crucial part of the treatment. Ibsen realized it was not only about pumping oxygen into Vivi's lungs, but also about removing all the byproducts that had accumulated in her system, like mucus and carbon dioxide. And Vivi was quiet, she was relaxed, and now he could start ventilating her. So Ibsen sat there by Vivi's side with a rubber bag connected to a tube manually blowing air into her lungs. One breath at a time. And gradually, as Vivi regained consciousness, there was a noticeable change with her. She goes from looking blue and gasping for breath to sort of being awake and pink and smiling. So half an hour later, some of the colleagues came back. And they're amazed. They can't believe that uh, she's doing so well. And so that was enough to convince them. From that point, the hospital leaders believed in Ibsen and his new method. And they decided to apply it throughout the hospital. It would be cheaper and simpler and wouldn't require any complicated machinery like the iron lung. This was something that every nurse or every doctor could sit down and do with very, very little training. Within days, the mortality rate for polio patients plummeted from as high as 90% with the iron lung to around 20%. The problem now was that the hospital had so many polio patients coming in that there weren't enough doctors and nurses available for the new treatment. So they began recruiting anyone they could find. Retired nurses, medical trainees, even dental students. They would each be in charge of one patient. They would literally sit next to the patient in their bed and they had a rubber bag and they had to compress this rubber bag somewhere between 20 and 30 times a minute to breathe for the patient. They would do this in six to eight hour shifts every day. It was exhausting work. Sometimes someone wouldn't show up to relieve them and you couldn't walk away. So then you would just have to stay and keep going for another six to eight hours. I was able to connect with one of the medical students they recruited. My name is Anne Holten Jensen, and uh, I am a senior doctor, and I am 90 years old. <laughs> By the way, you look very well for, for 90. Thank you. Thank you. I do what I can. <laughs> Anne was just 20 years old during the polio outbreak. In her second year of medical school, she had a friend who worked in the pediatric department of the hospital. And she was shaken because of the work she had to do 
It was like a war, she said. The ambulances were coming so often. So it was just a lot of children coming in, very ill children. They were gasping and they were blue to look at. It was awful. So Anne went to the hospital one evening to see if she could help. There were two elder students who uh, told me that I was very welcome to start immediately. And uh, so I did, and they told me in a few minutes what to do. So, so your training was a couple of, just a few minutes was your training? Yes. And then I was put to a patient who died the same evening. And it was awful. The other students eventually came to relieve Anne and pleaded for her to come back the following morning. After the experience of the first evening, she wasn't sure if she could go back. It was rather hard, but uh, then I came the next morning and they uh, asked if I would uh, like to have a patient to ventilate who was a little boy. And I accepted and it was much better than the evening before. The little boy was called Paul. He was five years old and had paralysis in his arms. But he was very alert and precocious. It is fantastic how children can just accept what is going on. And he was, he was a little clever boy. Anne stayed with Paul day in and day out, sitting next to his bed and compressing that little rubber bag between 20 and 30 times a minute. She read him stories. Winnie the Pooh was his favorite. She supported him during very painful sessions of physiotherapy. And she even broke some hospital rules with him. He tried to make some uh, agreement with me. Because a patient who'd had a tracheostomy couldn't speak, they had to communicate in other ways, by blinking their eyes or pointing or using special boards. But Paul and Anne discovered a way around it. They found that if they released a little pressure near the tube going into his neck, small amount of air could pass and it passed to his vocal cords and then he could speak and say something to me. He really loved when we did this experiment. We only did it when there were no one else in the room. Then, after three months of sitting by Paul's side, compressing that little bag for hours at a time, suddenly one day I felt there was some resistance in the balloon. And I said to him, what are you doing, Paul? Are you trying to breathe? And he was uh, smiling. Anne started letting Paul try to breathe by himself. I started not giving him some air for half a minute, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, and he started to breathe. And after a short while, he could breathe himself completely. Eventually, Paul was able to leave the ward and move to the pediatric department, where he began his rehabilitation. So I lost contact with him. 
unfortunately. Anne never saw Paul again. And even if she'd wanted to keep in touch, she was too busy by then. She was put in charge of another polio patient, a three-month-old baby. Soon after, though, she had to return to her studies. At the time, none of what she was doing seemed particularly out of the ordinary for her. We didn't feel that we had been doing something special. No. And none of us did so. I thought, now you're going to become a doctor, so this is your life maybe in the future. I didn't know better. Because of all the work she'd put in at the hospital, Anne failed her exams that semester. But she did pass later and became a doctor. And even if it didn't feel special to her at the time, her work in 1952 and the method that Bjorn Ibsen pioneered gave rise to modern intensive care units. So Ibsen's idea was to create a ward where people with respiratory insufficiency, no matter what reason, can come and be treated. That's Louise Reisner again. And this is what he did a year later. He opened in December 1953, he opened the first intensive care unit of the world. And soon, this idea of positive pressure ventilation would gain recognition and come to be replicated around the world. They published widely in highly respected journals, The Lancet, the British Medical Journal. Within a few years, they had people visiting to see their approach. And so it really was influential in convincing people that this was an approach that could be used for care, not only of polio patients, but then of other patients who had uh, respiratory failure for other causes. In time, the ventilation was done with mechanical ventilators, like the ones we might see in a hospital today. But the principles were still the same. Ibsen, however, was not given recognition for his innovations at the time. He did not get the credit that he deserved. The director of Bladeham Hospital, Dr. Henry Lassen, told Ibsen not to forget that it was the generals who won the wars, not the soldiers. And Lassen considered himself as a general and Ibsen as a soldier. And uh, when I spoke to Ibsen, he was still bitter about that. You could still hear it in his voice. Eventually, Ibsen did gain the recognition he deserved, at least within his medical specialty. These days, some anesthesiologists and intensive care physicians mark August 27th, the anniversary of Vivi Ebert's procedure, as Bjorn Ibsen Day in his honour. Vivi survived her treatment and was able to live for many years afterwards. Unfortunately, she was one of the few patients who never recovered enough to be completely independent from the ventilator and live the rest of her life needing the support of a mechanical ventilator on and off. She did, however, eventually leave the hospital, as did Paul and hundreds of other patients. Patients who may not have been so lucky if it hadn't been for one doctor who decided to take a risk on an experimental procedure and for countless volunteers who followed his lead. That story was reported by Daniel Simo. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about intensive care units. They got their start with a new way to help patients breathe, and that's still a big part of intensive care today. There's a sound on a ventilator 
that every time I think about ICU, that sound goes off in my head. Or if I ever hear that sound, I immediately, almost like an alarm clock, I kind of perk up and I, I look around like something's going on. That's Haney Malamed. He is a critical care physician at Cooper Medical Center at Rowan University in New Jersey. He says some patients may come to the ICU with heart issues, serious infections, severe pneumonia, if they need to be intubated or placed on a ventilator, or maybe they need critical care after a surgery or an accident. And he says at the core of care in the ICU is nursing. Without nurses, there would be no critical care. The nurses are at the bedside every single moment, and they're helping that patient through. They're helping to get them to where they need to be. You know, nurses are our eyes and their ears when we're away from the bedside. They communicate important data for us. They collect that data for us. They also help when we, the doctors, leave the bedside. They keep working with the families, building rapport and I've learned over the years that when a nurse tells you that you need to come to the bedside and see a patient, you better be getting over to that bedside because something is about to happen. Do you feel like you get to develop a relationship with your patients? I mean, obviously, you're there for them during an incredibly important time in their lives. But do you get to know them? I do for the patients who are conscious and alert, which is a percentage of the patients. But most of the time when patients come to the ICU, unfortunately, they may be unconscious. They may have a breathing tube and they can't communicate well. In those situations, I have to build relationships with families, which is part of the job that I truly enjoy. We get to find out who the decision maker is in the family. I get to know a little bit more about the person because that person is the voice of that person who can't inform me about what's going on. And through that relationship, we could make some decisions on the trajectory for the patient. And sometimes the illness is so severe and catastrophic that we start to talk about transitioning to end-of-life discussions. And these conversations with families are often very difficult. It's very rare that you meet a family who is on board with what you're seeing right away. Mm -hmm. Because for many people, this is the first time in their life that they're confronted with such a decision that their mother, their father, their brother, sister is critically ill and might die. And they're scared. They have questions. They may not be medically literate and they want to bring in other people in the family. They may have an opinion on something and they talk to a sibling and the sibling has the exact opposite view. What I can say is over the years, what I've learned is to be more patient and to listen more, to gather all the information first before getting too far into decisions, because there are usually other family members that come into the mix. So we try to sit down, have a meeting and incorporate as many people who are going to be, um, shareholders in the decision right up front, and then we can move forward, figure out who the important people are to include in the conversations, and move forward with some meaningful decisions after that. Given how challenging the setting is and all of these tough conversations, I wondered why Haney had decided to work in the ICU. Do people ask you, like, why did you choose this? Like, this sounds, you know, this sounds like you're always there for the hard part. I get the question, uh, you know, they ask, is it the adrenaline rush? Mm -hmm. Is it the, is it the procedures? Because we do a lot of procedures in critical care. 
And I think that played a part in the decision initially. But now that I've been doing it for a while, one of the things that resonates over and over again and, and was part of my initial decision is the family and the patient interactions. I truly enjoy when I can help a family navigate a very difficult situation. These are things that might be the only time in their life that they've ever dealt with it. And the more experience I get in critical care, the more I realize that I can get them to where they need to be sooner than someone who's not trained in critical care in terms of what do they need to know right now? What are the real possibilities that their loved one might die? And what do we need to get through this? Now, you mentioned, you know, talking to families about potentially having to transition their loved one to to end of life. And when I think of critical care, I often think of always trying one more thing, always, always trying. How do you make the decision when to stop trying? It's not a decision that I make by myself mm -hmm. in a vacuum. There are times where families do try and say, well, what do you think and what do you want to do? But I'd rather focus on learning more about the patient who's laying in the bed from the family and trying to figure out what their goals are. There's many situations, many times where people come in and they have metastatic cancer. They have many comorbid conditions. And now they have one more critical illness on top of that. And I asked the family, is this what this person would want for them? Would they want to have the breathing tube in? Would they want us to be doing procedures? Or would they want us to transition them to comfort care, to make them more comfortable, to ease their pain, and to transition them to death? Which sounds very bad to say, but at some point, our bodies give out. And it might be that illness that they present with that is the opportunity for us to help them to transition to a more comfortable care. That's not a very easy discussion for most families, but it's one that we do in the critical care with the doctors, the nurses, the, the social workers. As a team, we come up with these plans together to help families get through this. In your line of work, what have you learned about both human vulnerability and also resilience. I mean, sometimes we see these cases where we cannot believe that somebody pulled through. Other times, like somebody takes a turn for the worse at a moment where we thought, oh, he's going to make it or she's going to make it. So what have you learned about those things? I've seen both spectrums. I've seen people who I did not think uh, were going to go into cardiac arrest and die. And I've seen people who every statistic, every metric would say that that person is so critically ill, their chance of leaving the hospital is almost zero. Now, both of those are very rare occurrences. But what I've learned from that is it is so important to understand your patient's wants and needs early on up front. If you can have a conversation with the patient and you can figure out what their their moral and ethical code is when it comes to resuscitation or bringing them back. It's so important to know. There are people who've told me that they believe in nature taking its course and they don't want anything done. And these people are people that have surprised me and coded in the hospital. And by code, I mean gone to cardiac arrest. And they didn't want anything done, despite the fact that they statistically had many years left. But I think it's so important for us not to assume what a patient wants if you have the opportunity to have a conversation with the patient and find out what their moral code is, do it. 
And if they're not able to, then have a talk with the family. You'll be surprised sometimes when you talk to families to learn much more about the patient. I'm sure all of this getting to know the families, knowing what people wanted must have been so much harder during the pandemic, especially during the early stages. How did you manage those times? It was it was the hardest point of my career. Um, there were so many times I, I sat in my car after my shift just crying because I've never seen anything like what I saw during the pandemic and the stories that I haven't even been able to to share just yet. Uh, we saw people come in who um, were talking and seemingly looking well, and within 24 hours were completely different. And having breathing tubes and being proned or, or put on their bellies for better oxygenation, the conversations with families when families weren't able to come into the hospital because we were trying to isolate the virus and making sure that wasn't spreading, you know, normally we'd have families at the bedside and the fact that they weren't able to be there made me feel like I was cheating people out of that quality time that people spend with their family at the end of their life. So it was tremendously difficult. And, um, you know, it, it's just one of those things that I really haven't gotten over. What are you doing with that feeling? All those things that are sort of stored away for now. I, I tell you, I probably should be getting some therapy and talking to people about that. And that's probably something I'll be doing soon because it's just, it's what I saw and what my colleagues saw and what we dealt with is more than any human being can handle. It was, I, I've never been in a war, but when I hear veterans talking about their experience on the field, that's what it felt like sometimes just with people you know, getting sick and dying all around you. What I've done is, as I've spoken to friends, I've confided in people, uh, we've had long conversations, uh, being very open and honest about feelings, uh, journaling. And then at some point, I think it is very important for myself and, and other healthcare professionals to talk to somebody. Emergency medicine and critical care is something we've always, we just always internalize. But the pandemic was, uh, was definitely... It's too much to keep inside. That's Haney Malamet. He's a critical care physician at Cooper Medical Center at Rowan University in New Jersey. He was just describing the heartbreak of being in the ICU during the pandemic. But coming up, we'll hear a story from that same time period that has a happier ending. I saw that he was awake and, and talking, and, and I, I kind of did a double take and was was wondering, oh my gosh, is this the same person? I had to like go back and, and just make sure that, yeah, this is the same person. Looked very, very different. That's next on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about intensive care units. They were the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic for months and months, with so many nurses and physicians battling for their patients' lives one day at a time. There were the sheer number of patients, but then there was also the fact that they were staying in intensive care longer. Reporter Jed Slayman talked to an ICU physician at the University of Maryland Medical Center about one patient he'll never forget. 
Everything was different at Nirav Shah's ICU during the early days of the pandemic. They were busier than ever before. Who was going to recover and who was suddenly going to take a turn for the worse seemed way less predictable. Patients were staying in the ICU longer, and because of COVID, no family members were around to look in on them. Normally, a patient's in the ICU for, you know, about, let's say, about a week. But when they're there for a couple of months, who's helping them, you know, who's shaving their face, who's, who's combing their hair, who's moving their legs and, and kind of helping out with some of the, the physical therapy. A lot of this stuff is done by patients' families when they're in the hospital visiting. So now it all fell to the doctors and the nurses especially, and it was exhausting. To Nirav, though, it was important to remember, no matter how tired you are or how long a patient has lain there unconscious, that these patients are people. You know, once you get intubated, people look different. You know, they're, they're not doing as much. Their volume status changes, um, you know, how much volume is going in to support them versus how much is coming out. So they get bloated and swollen. Their hair changes, right? They have more facial hair if they grow facial hair and, and they, they, just, they just look different. They have a tube coming out of their mouth. They're, they don't look the same as if they're sitting in a chair, right? Even still, Nirov says he treats the patients as if they're awake and aware. He knocks on the door before entering a room, even when the patient inside has been unconscious for weeks. He introduces himself even though the patient can't talk or even open their eyes. He's not sure if they can even hear him. We don't know entirely what they can and can't hear. We've heard stories from patients that have come out of critical illness where they recall things and they definitely kind of hear a lot of stuff and sometimes it's taken out of context and and they create these vivid dreams or nightmares around some of the stuff that they hear in the state that they're in. So yeah, because we don't know exactly, we, we err on the side of being polite and making sure that we do exactly what we would do as if someone was awake. For Nirov, it feels like the right way to do things, because that unresponsive, anonymous patient is someone's loved one. He knows that from his own experience in the same hospital where he now works. So my my dad in 2010 died in room 25. And so I have a personal connection to that ICU. And I have a connection to that unit as having been a family member of someone who was a critically ill patient in that ICU. And so that shapes kind of how I think about medicine and how I think about patients in critical care. This empathy for his patients endured throughout the years, but it was thoroughly tested during the pandemic. The exhaustion, the sheer number of patients, he tells me about one that stuck with him. The name on the chart said Creed Bailey. He was married with kids and in his 50s, younger than most on the floor. Nirov is not in the hospital every day. He also works in the University of Maryland Medical School and does his ICU duty in stints. I came off service, you know, in, in, in the University of Maryland Medical Center, we, we do weeks at a time. And so I'd done a few weeks, I'd gone off service, I came back and he was still there and we took care of him some more. Things for the patient, Creed, were touch and go as the weeks progressed. I remember there was one evening that I was taking care of him that I called his wife and I said, I don't know if he's going to make it through the night. And so I just want you to, you know, if if you want to FaceTime or Zoom and, you know, I want you to be aware of this. Creed made it through that close call, but there were others. Times when the ventilator was working as hard as it could, when the drug dosages were at their highest safe possible level. 
is he going to survive this? And, and thinking again, I need to call his wife and, and let her know. And, and there were times where we, we, we wondered, you know, are we doing the right stuff? One day, after being gone a few weeks, he returned to the ICU to see that Creed's leg had been amputated due to complications of being in this ventilated state for so long. If he survived, someone would have to explain to the patient why his leg was missing. Yeah, the thought went through my mind that, oh my gosh, you know, this is obviously... It was what was needed to save his life. But what's his reaction going to be, right? In total, Creed was in the ICU close to two months. Then one day, Nirov came back from one of his teaching stints, walked by Creed's room, and couldn't believe his eyes. I saw that he was awake and, and talking, and, and I, I kind of did a double take and was <laughs> was wondering, oh my gosh, is this the same person? I had to like go back and, and just make sure that, yeah, this is the same person. Looked very, very different. It hadn't occurred to him before, but Nirov didn't even know what this guy sounded like. He'd never heard him speak. One of the first things I said to him was, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about your leg. And, and his response was, what, that leg? That's been bothering me for 20 years. I'm glad that that ankle's gone. That ankle is bothering me for 20 years. Who would have guessed under the vent tube and the IVs, Creed had a sense of humor. And the two, Nirov and Creed, actually ended up getting along pretty well. We have a relationship, a, a doctor-patient relationship, but also one in which, you know, he'll he'll text me and, and he has my cell phone number, obviously, and he'll text me and, and say, hey, just checking in, seeing how things are going. And, and more recently said, well, you know, let's get out and play golf one day, which would be amazing. I would love it. It's strange. A bit like having a friend you've known for two months longer than they've known you. And he's just had this um, profound impact on me having taken care of him and been a part of his journey to know that, you know, everything that we do all too often, we, we don't get to see the, the end result. Right. And in his case, we got to see that all the, the nights that we were worrying about him, all the support that we were giving him, that he survived. The whole thing reinforced Nirov's commitment to kindness, even to the unconscious that Nirov had forged watching his father die in the same ICU a decade before the pandemic. It's like one of my biggest goals. Like my patients know that I care about them. After I talked to Nirov, I was actually able to get a hold of Creed. He's doing well, and he's still got that sense of humor about everything that happened to him. My choices were pretty straightforward. Either they had to take the leg or I wasn't going to make it. So that's it's a pretty easy decision. I'm wearing a T-shirt now that says it's official. I'm on my last leg. I ask him what he remembers about his stay, and there's not much. When they put him under, he thought it would be for a few hours, not eight weeks. He woke up in a different world. And the TV was on in the room, and they were talking about a contested election. And, you know, I'm full of tubes, so I can't talk, but I know in my mind, I was like, that doesn't make sense because the election's still a couple of months away. He tells me he's grateful for the care he got from Nirov and the team, and especially for the way they made him feel human. For The Pulse, I'm Jad Slayman. We're talking about intensive care. The story we just heard about an ICU patient had a happy ending, but many did not, especially during the early parts of the pandemic, a time that brought many people working in healthcare to the brink of exhaustion and despair. I asked critical care physician Haney Malamud if this time had made him rethink his career. It didn't. 
What I can tell you is that uh, I was in New York City during 9-11. I was a medical student, and there was not much I could do. I would watch the firefighters and police officers rush into the building, and I'd see interviews, and they, the people who survived, the, the first responders who survived, said it was their calling. It was their moment to do what they've trained to do. And when the pandemic hit, I thought for the first time ever in my career that this is what I was there to do, to do critical care. And, you know, I, I worked more. I, you know, I went back to working the hours that I worked during my residency and fellowship, even though I was an attending physician and you don't work that hard as an attending. I thought that this is my calling. This is what I'm there to do. There's no one else right now. So this was my moment to do what I trained for. And I'm proud of the people around me, everyone who stepped up to the challenge, most of the people I know uh, ran towards the fire instead of away. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. We've started to release a new narrative podcast series called Serum about the early days of the AIDS epidemic. I hope you'll check it out. Here's a little preview. Physician Gary Davis had one passion, to cure AIDS. He was consumed with it. It was the early 1990s, and the black doctor had seen too many people die from this virus. He started researching, making a treatment using goat antibodies. The virus will start disappearing in your blood. Davis had many supporters. The horrible life that HIV gave me, I hope this is the end of it. And powerful critics. Yeah, with all due respect, they were not successful. Desperate to develop his treatment, Davis forged alliances with questionable characters and dangerous conmen. Somebody would say, I'm going to kill you and your family. And when the doctor died unexpectedly, there were questions. He believed Dr. Davis was still alive and in hiding. I'm Grant Hill. Serum, a new podcast from WHYY's The Pulse, tells this story, which stretches across continents and into the innermost circles of power and fame. And, you know, I wanted to get it to Magic Johnson right away. Serum. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Take a listen to Serum. We have three episodes out now, and a new one will be released next week. You can find The Pulse on social media at WHYY The Pulse. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Jad Slayman. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. And this week, we had additional engineering from Al Banks and Mike Villers. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice. But you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. 
I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.